ABI Podcast. This is Ann Lawton, a professor of law at Michigan State University and the American Bankruptcy Institute Residence Scholar. My guests today are Judge Judith Fitzgerald, formerly a bankruptcy judge for the Western District of Pennsylvania and that court's chief judge for five years, and Lawrence Ponaroff, the Samuel M. Fetley Chair in Commercial Law at the University of Arizona College of Law. My two guests are here to discuss the question of whether Section 330A of the Bankruptcy Code affords bankruptcy judges discretion to award compensation for defense of a fee application. The Supreme Court granted cert on that question in the case of Baker Botts LLP versus Asarco LLC and heard oral argument in the case about three weeks ago. Both Judge Fitzgerald and Professor Ponaroff are parties to amicus briefs that take opposing positions on the question before the court. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Each of you argues that the language of the code supports your position. I'd like to start with those statutory arguments. So, Judge Fitzgerald, you argue that 330A authorizes bankruptcy judges to award fees in fee defense litigation. What language in the code provides support for that position? Well, the position we've argued is that Section 330A1A, which authorizes that the court may award fees in um, any professional engagement that uh, is required to be filed under the Bankruptcy Code, authorizes the court to award those fees. So um, my position is that 330A1A authorizes it, and I think that to a certain extent, further language in the code in another section, not in 330A1, um, also authorizes it because I think that the defense of the fee applications is actually something that is necessary toward the completion of the case. I agree with the petitioners in when they argue that the um, case cannot be closed until the court has an opportunity to award the fees and authorize the distributions under the plan. And I think that the defensive fee applications, when someone has raised an objection, also assists in that regard. So that would be my position. So, Professor Ponaroff, you take an opposing view. Could you explain the basis for your argument that the code does not authorize fees on fees? Sure, of course. Um, It's interesting that this is a case in which both sides take the position that the statutory text is clear, plain, and unambiguous. It's just that they attach entirely different meanings to that unambiguous language. Um, I think Section 330A on its face is arguably ambiguous because it doesn't speak to the issue of uh, awarding fees one way or another. Now, there is the argument that the default then is you go to the American rule But uh, beyond that, the point is, I don't think you can read Section 330A in isolation. I think it has to be read together with Section 327A, and that together, those provisions can't support recovery of a professional's attorney's fees incurred to uh, defeat an objection to its um, fee Um, because, one, there's no explicit fee-shifting provision. Um, Two, Section 330A allows for reasonable compensation for necessary services rendered by a professional hired uh, 
whose employment was approved under Section 327A and retention under 327A is limited to persons who do not have an adverse interest to the estate and limited to services involving assistance to the trustee in carrying out her duties. So when the attorney is um, uh, defending the objection to the fee app, that's beyond the scope of the approved retention for which a fee can be awarded under Section 338. Well, Professor Ponteroff, how, how do you, if that is the case, how do you deal with the concept that if a professional fee is, I'm just going to make up numbers to make this easy, let's say the professional fee award is $1,000, and the professional has been approved by the court under Section 327, but um, some party, let's just make it the debtor for ease, again, of access um, to understanding here, who happens to be insolvent, objects to the fee, and it costs the professional the full $1,000 to defend the fee. How do you deal with the concept that, as a policy matter, trustees and debtors will never be able to retain counsel because without that capability of knowing that they will, in fact, receive some compensation, they won't agree to, to, to be at that level of risk, and I guess my second question is, is it your contention that in defending your fee application, somehow you are adverse to the estate that you've been representing? Well, in my typical way, let me, let me take your questions back, Asward. Um, I, I don't think you're adverse in the sense that you're disqualified. Um, it's simply that, one, you're not providing services, to the estate um, at that point, and two, that your activities in uh, defending against the objection um, are uh, simply beyond the scope of the authorized representation. doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Um, you can hardly be blamed for doing so, um, but um, it's not part of the services for which uh, compensation can be awarded under Section 330A, um, in my view. Before you move um, to the second argument, could I ask a, a follow-up question to this one, which is in Section 330A3, Congress has set out a, a non-exclusive list of relevant factors that a bankruptcy court can consider in awarding fees. Wouldn't it be appropriate for the court to decide that the defense of a fee application, particularly in the event of a frivolous objection, is in fact a factor that could be considered in awarding that fee? Well, first of all, now you just used the word a frivolous objection. If it really is yes. frivolous and groundless, there are mechanisms through which sanctions, including an award of fees, um, can be um, granted. Um, I think, you know, Justice Kagan um, uh, focused a lot on Section A3 in her um, questioning of the um, respondent, but I think the, the problem with relying on um, Section A3, and particularly, I think, A3C, which deals with services rendered toward completion of the estate, is that mistakenly conflates the factors 
for determining the reasonableness of the, of, um, the compensation. That's the uh, Section 3 um, factors. But it conflates those factors with the threshold question of entitlement compensation in the first place. So Section 330A3's factors presuppose that the professional has been retained under 327A for this purpose and qualifies for compensation to begin with, um, which, again, I, I think is simply not the case. So let me jump in here for a minute. Because you've answered my question as well as about adverse, you're saying they're not disqualified as a result. That was one of the questions that came up in oral argument, right? But let's go to Professor, excuse me, let's go to Justice Kagan's hypothetical. Because I read that as sort of a follow-up of the U.S.'s position here, which is can't we get to the point of saying fees and fees are compensable using the language of A1 and what reasonable means? So... In, at oral argument, she posited a hypothetical, right? I hire you to shuffle my driveway. Everyone agrees reasonable compensation is $10. But then I say to you, you've got to come down to court to pick up your $10. That costs you $5. So you end up netting 5 when everyone agrees 10 is reasonable compensation. So why is the question of what's reasonable, why does that not cover or include things to obtain, everything that you need to obtain compensation for the underlying work. First of all, I object to the concept of fees on fees. I don't think defending your fee application is awarding fees for fees. I I think that the bigger problem in that respect may be bonuses because that to a certain extent is awarding fees for services that have already been rendered and is a fee on fee, but nobody seems to be challenging the fact that even though a bonus may have exactly the same consequence to the parties in the estate as a defense of a fee application, the bonuses are sometimes appropriate. So I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with the concept of fees on fees. But secondly, I think the answer to, to just, I, I, I think the hypothetical doesn't really address the circumstance that we have here, because Justice Kagan is looking at basically a private contract. And although the fee agreement that a counsel may have with its client is a, indeed a private contract, this has so many public policy concerns and, and federal court oversight that I just don't think that it's, a, that it's possible or appropriate, I suppose is the better word, appropriate to make that analogy between a fee application defense and what happens in the event that something goes afoul with your normal contract to shovel the driveway and you've got to defend your fees. I, I just don't see them as analogous. Okay. So, Professor Pronoroff, I think you might want to respond to this as well, right? Well, actually, um, I would because this is um, uh, uh, a matter as to which Judge Fitzgerald and I are in perfect agreement. I, I think Justice Kagan's example, or the answer to her example, is that's a contractual matter. And if I have to spend $5 to go down to the courthouse, the question is, under the terms of the contract, am, uh, do I recover um, that $5? And if the contract is unclear, we look at the default rule. And if the default rule is payment occurs at the seller's place of business, and I didn't change it, in the contract, then I don't get that extra five dollars. 
in the event that the defense of the fee application costs as much as or more than the award of the fee itself, how would a trustee or a debtor in possession or anyone else involved in a bankruptcy case be able to obtain counsel when there is no assurance that, um, or no likelihood in a case where fees would normally be awarded that they will be awarded under those circumstances? And my response to that would be that um, that's no different than the circumstance that uh, attains outside of bankruptcy. Um, if I represent a client on a residential house closing and, and, and charge a $500 fee and the client doesn't pay it or contests it in some way, um, the reality is, unless my contractual arrangement with that client provided for fees, it's going to cost me um, more to pursue the client um, than it's worth. Now, in bankruptcy, there's an advantage, which is you have, um, Judge, as you pointed out, you do have the judicial oversight of a, um, a federal judge that can um, uh, uh, jettison a... Uh, clearly frivolous uh, objection um, in, in a fashion that outside of bankruptcy um, doesn't occur. So, um, you know, I, I'm not unsympathetic to, to, the, to the lawyer that um, uh, is um, faced with the um, prospect of having to um, defend a meritless challenge to its fee. And that's this case. I mean, by every account, Baker Botts did a thoroughly professional job in in handling a, a difficult Chapter um, 11 case. Um, As evidenced by the enhancement. Right. That's right. Um, and um, But the enhancement is part of the court's discretion in these matters, which I'm very supportive of. Uh, as I am of the compensation parity um, argument. I just think the position being taken here would put the, would provide greater compensation for attorneys in bankruptcy cases than in non-bankruptcy matters. Well, see, I think the difference may be that when you're talking about a private person in a private circumstance without the federal court oversight and the, and the requirements of the fee application process in the bankruptcy court code, um, you're able in your contract documents to take care of what's going to happen in the event that you have to litigate with your client. And assuming that your client, in fact, has the wherewithal to pay your fees if your contract provides for the defense of those fees, then you have an opportunity to recover. But I don't think that same thing exists in the bankruptcy code because the courts are, are under an obligation to award fees at a level that is compensable with attorneys who practice in other disciplines, not necessarily in the bankruptcy court. So I don't think that the circuit's suggestion that one way to address this is to have the attorneys essentially figure out the risk that they're going to face an objection and build that into their hourly rate works because I think a bankruptcy judge who's aware of that fact is going to say, wait a minute, that's not something that I can approve. I cannot approve your base fee at that level because it's not something that, that happens in a comparable circumstance outside. 
So I, I just don't agree that that analogy works on all fours with the circumstances that parties face in the bankruptcy court. But I guess my second question is, why couldn't the defense of a fee application essentially be treated as though it's an enhancement? If enhancements are discretionary, why can't you enhance the person's fee award by saying, fine, you were entitled to X dollars, so as an enhancement, I'm going to permit you to recover your defense costs because that's the only way I can get you back to the fee that I said you were entitled to in the first place. Professor Panoff? The answer is because you don't have the statutory authority to do that. Now, can you hide it um, in an enhancement? I, I, I suppose that's appropriate. And let me just, two other points very quickly. Um, while it's true, outside of bankruptcy, I can deal with the possibility of a fee contest by a cost of collection clause in my engagement letter, um, I don't think I'm going to get many engagements if I include cost of collection clauses vis-a-vis um, my own um, prospective um, clients. So um, I, I think the, the analogy is um, uh, a little bit um, closer. The last point uh, I wanted to make relates to uh, Judge Fitzgerald's comment that it would not be appropriate to award a fee with an enhanced rate or a boost intended to take account of the possibility of incurring non-compensable defense costs down the road. Um, actually, I agree with her on that, but my response would be that, just as outside of bankruptcy, the professional's fee already takes into account the possibility of non-collection or additional costs to collect. In other words, uh, let's say that if I knew for a certainty that I would always be paid 100 cents on the dollar with no transaction costs, my base fee would be $200 per hour. But I don't know that, and it's probably not true, which is why my regular base fee is $250 per hour. So, the point is, if we award compensation to the bankruptcy professional at her regular non-bankruptcy hourly rate, but no fee defense cost, that's compensation parity. Awarding the fees to defend the fees is compensation parity on steroids. <laughs> so let's go back, Professor Ponorov, to your basic point you made earlier which is that there's a difference between the basic entitlement to fees, right, which you say uh, 330A1, for example, does not include entitlement, and something like A3, which talks about compensation. So, uh, Judge Fitzgerald, I'm curious, how do you work your way around the language, for example, in 330A1 that talks about services rendered. So someone defending her fee application, how is she rendering service? You've already rendered the service. The question is whether, you know, what, to what extent your, your fees are compensable for rendering the service. I think you've rendered the service with the expectation that your client is essentially satisfied with what you've done, because if your client isn't satisfied, then you probably have a different issue than we're, in, we're talking about here. Maybe that's not always true, but at, for purposes of this discussion, if we could just assume that for the moment. Because what happened here is 
the entity that um, that was contesting the fees is a, the equivalent of an adverse party. So if an adverse party wants to come in and attack the fees, but the person who received the services is comfortable with those services, I'm not sure that defending the fee application isn't, in fact, part of the, the compensability of the reasonable services. And for that purpose, I want to take it out of the concept that it is the lawyer defending the lawyer's fee application and instead go to something like what happened in the 1002 Gemini Interests LLC case in the bankruptcy court in the Southern District of Texas recently. There was an ASARCO-type objection that was filed to fees that were sought by an examiner in that case, and the examiner hired counsel to defend the fee application, and the court in that case said that that was appropriate, that the fees for the defense of the examiner's fee application were awardable despite the ASARCO case in the Fifth Circuit, and essentially said that ASARCO would not bar the examiner for recovering fees that were incurred in defending the professional's contested fee application. So if the examiner can hire counsel to defend that application and recover fees because the service is being provided, I'm not sure why the professional who rendered the services to the debtor or the creditor's committee or whoever it is that's going to be challenged isn't providing equivalent services. I, I, I guess the definition of services is what's concerning me. I'm not sure that I quite agree that services are are cut off at the end of filing a fee application. If you've got to defend the fee to substantiate that you performed the services, it seems to me that that's all part of the services. I, I tend to agree with whatever justice, I apologize, I've forgotten which, made the question um, of, I think it was Justice Ginsburg, of whether this isn't all part of one process. You file a complaint and a summons and then an answer and then a reply and eventually get to trial. That's kind of how I see this process developing. You perform the service, you do what the code requires to document your application, somebody objects to it, you've got to defend that, and it may not be the final fee app, it may be an interim fee app, and you've got to get eventually to the end of the case, and I see it as a continuum. I see. So you're saying that services rendered should not be so compartmentalized as to relate to the work, the underlying work, it includes everything, and that includes the fee application plus defending the fee application. Is that a correct way of looking at what you just said? Yeah, that's a fair summary with one exception. I don't know that everything that shows up in a fee application is necessarily compensable. I mean, I, I think the whole purpose of my participating as an amicus was to say that bankruptcy judges have the capability and should have the discretion to be able to look at each of these items independently. And so, yes, I think it's all part of one process. But whether every specific item is compensable, I'm not sure I'd want to go that far. I think the court should have the discretion to make that decision, including whether or not the payment for the defense of the fee application itself is compensable given the circumstances of the particular case. Professor Ponoroff, did you want to respond? Well, just a couple of thoughts about it. I mean, first, I do want to um, point out that um, the government, which supported the petitioner's position, did argue that they didn't believe the defense of the fee app constituted um, 
a service. And that's why, um, despite being um, uh, uh, pushed about what about A4, uh, the uh, services uh, that are um, necessary to the administration of the case, the, the government didn't want to go there. Um, but, but the other point that's troubling to me is exactly the example um, Judge Fitzgerald um, raised. In this case, the petitioner's um, position, if vindicated, it would operate like a fee-shifting award, wouldn't it? Because the debtor was challenging the fee, and the challenge was unsuccessful. But, as Judge Fitzgerald pointed out, any party in interest can object to um, a fee app, and not just a fee app by an attorney, by any professional. So, the petitioner's position uh, regarding recovery of defense expenses would mean, uh, just for example, the fees of an unapproved lawyer hired by an investment banker to defend, let's say, the U.S. trustee's objection to the um, investment banker's fees would come out of the estate um, even though it wasn't um, the debtor that filed the objection, and regardless of whether the objection is unsuccessful. Um, I, I, you know, I, I might be okay with the loser pay rules, but the problem here is that we're placing a burden on the estate that the estate doesn't necessarily um, control, and a burden that ultimately... Um, the uh, creditors of the company are, are the ones uh, that will um, absorb it, uh, assuming there can even be a reorganization, because the more administrative expenses that you heap on the debtor that have to be cashed out at confirmation, the less likely uh, it is that you're going to be able to confirm the plan. It's not a fee-shifting argument. So, just to clarify, because you made a couple of points there that I'd like you to respond to, Judge Fitzgerald. The first, uh, it's not clear to me that Judge Fitzgerald was saying that uh, an unsuccessful party would recover these fees for defending a fee application. Is that what you're saying, that there's no way to distinguish between successful and unsuccessful defense, Professor Ponorov? Well, I would, I, I was saying that the under the petitioner's position um, that the fees could be awarded um, regardless of whether the objection is unsuccessful or not. Now, in a given case, the judge may say, um, you know what, the objection was successful, I'm not going to award the fees, but the position taken would leave that open um, leave that opportunity uh, open uh, to the judge unless the objector was found to have um, acted in bad faith, which, you know, unfortunately, ASARCO was not. So, Judge Fitzgerald, how do you respond? Well, first of all, ASARCO's issue came up post-confirmation in a case in which all creditors had been paid 100 cents on the dollar. So the, the construct of the case and the way it came up doesn't doesn't produce the list of horribles that Professor Ponoroff is hypothesizing. 
in that the plan was already confirmed and all creditors were paid 100 cents on the dollar, which I think makes this even more egregious as a situation where a bankruptcy judge doesn't have the authority to look at the objection itself and determine whether it is brought for legitimate purposes and whether it's successful and fees should be awarded. So I I guess, do I agree that in some circumstances the allowance of administrative expenses mean that other creditors don't get paid? Yes, I 100% agree with Professor Bonneroff that that's what happens, but that's not an unusual thing in bankruptcy. Many, many confirmed plans um, appoint liquidating trustees for the purpose of pursuing avoidance actions, and literally the only thing that happens with the outcome of the avoidance actions is that the professionals who had the priority claims get paid. So it's not an unusual process in bankruptcy for professionals to, to be paid ahead of unsecured creditors. They have a priority. So I'm, I'm just not... I'm, I'm just not... Um, convinced that that's a reason to deny the bankruptcy judges the discretion to determine when fees should be compensable for defending a fee application. Our um, brief goes into uh, quite a number of cases in which courts have refused to award fees for unsuccessful defenses to fee litigation, and I suppose it's possible that a judge at some point may say, hey, this was a good-faith objection and a good-faith defense, so here I'm going to award your your fees. But the majority of cases, at least that are articulated in Arbery, don't don't support that view. I think it would be, you'd be pretty hard-pressed as a bankruptcy judge to say this was a non-frivolous objection, your fees were overcharged, and therefore you should be compensated for defending an application in which your fees are not going to be approved. That, That just... It doesn't make logical sense to me. So let me go to the second point that you had made before, um, Professor Ponoroff, which is there's a lot of talk in the briefs at oral argument about fee-shifting statutes. It's pretty clear that you don't think 330A is analogous to a fee-shifting statute. Is that correct? That it's more, it's the American rule. Well, I I don't think it's a fee-shifting statute. I think when you look at the civil rights um, statutes and the environmental statutes that do contain what everybody acknowledges to be um, uh, fee-shifting provisions, um, they are um, much more um, explicit. And, and I guess I, I, I would also want to say, just clear, I know I'm not on the popular side of this issue, I don't want to deny discretion um, to bankruptcy judges. Um, I I believe, and I'm um, on record, I think that Congress has unduly constrained the discretion of bankruptcy judges in a number of um, areas that is unwise and um, unhealthy. Um, So I don't want to deny the discretion. My point is the statute denies the discretion, um, rightly or wrongly. So, Judge Fitzgerald, I'd like you to weigh in on this fee-shifting statute idea. Do you think that 330A is analogous to a fee-shifting statute? I don't think so in the way you're asking the question. I do think it's analogous in some respects, and that is that the debtor and the estate, that is, ends up compensating all of the professionals for all of the parties who were appointed in the case. 
And to that extent, it clearly is fee-shifting, because normally the creditors' committee would have to go out and hire its own lawyer and figure out a way to pay the creditors' committee. And the financial advisors for another party would have to go out and figure out how to get paid. But 330 and the relevant other relevant statutes make it the obligation of the debtor, the debtor's estate, to compensate them all. So in that sense, I think it is fee-shifting, but I don't think it's a fee-shifting in the sense that the winning party will be compensated by the losing party. I see. I agree with Professor Ponaroff there, but I don't agree that it's an American rule issue either. I think it's some sort of different statutory provision where the bankruptcy code provides for the method by which fee applications have to be filed and adjudicated, and I don't think that's either the American rule or a fee-shifting rule. I think it's a creation of its own. So is it accurate then to say that you don't think these uh, analogies to fee-shifting statutes, discussion of the American rule really helps or advances the, the ball on deciding whether fees for fee applications are compensable? I'd like to turn to uh, something we've talked about before as well, and I believe, uh, Judge Fitzgerald, you had mentioned this as well in the example that you gave about a case involving a fee examiner. There was a, an example, I believe, at oral argument, and the example was, well, what happens, for example, if an accountant um, has an objection to the accountant's fee application, and the accountant has to hire an attorney in order to defend that fee application? Does the accountant's attorney, is the accountant's attorney potentially compensated then for the fees that are incurred defending objections to the accountant's fee application? I think the answer is that it depends on the circumstances. <laughs> and I hate to keep sounding, you know, harp, uh, playing this harp, but I guess that's <laughs> where I am. I think it depends on the circumstances, and the bankruptcy court ought to be able to examine those circumstances in every case and, and make a decision. As a general rule, I don't see why they shouldn't be compensated for representing their client in the defense of that application, because otherwise there's nobody who can show up to make that defense. Typically speaking, for an accountant, it's not an individual who's coming in to defend an individual application. It's a company, and they can't represent themselves in bankruptcy. They've got to hire a lawyer to do it. And so I don't see why it shouldn't be compensable as a theoretical proposition. Uh, Professor Ponaroff, do you have anything to add there? Uh, well, I, I would point out that um, what Judge Fitzgerald just described is exactly the position that um, uh, the petitioner's counsel took in oral argument, I, I think somewhat to Justice Scalia's surprise. Yes. He said the accountant's lawyer's fees would be compensable um, as an expense to the accountant or as part of the accountant's reasonable compensation for his underlying services. Um, and um, I, I think that is um, the part of this that's that's very troubling. Um, we're um, compensating a professional who hasn't been um, whose uh, uh, engagement hasn't been um, approved by the court, who's acting from a fiduciary point of view for the accountant, not for the estate, not for the creditors, um, not for the trustee but for the um, accountant and making that come out of the estate as an administrative 
expense um, at the court's discretion. Um, I, I, I just I don't see the statutory. I think it runs counter to the whole structure of the statute. And again, from um, remember that objection may not have been filed by the debtor. From a policy point of view, I think it impairs um, the prospects of reorganization uh, to um, keep um, imposing fees on the estate that the estate has no control over. And and um, I, actually, I'm more sympathetic to that view too because I agree that when a party in a party who has been appointed as a fiduciary for a party, in, in other words, an accountant for a debtor, has to retain his own counsel to defend his own fee application. If that's what happens in the case, I think that's more attenuated than the circumstance where the defense is coming by the person who has engaged the services in the first place and is now being required to pay those fees because there is more control over the disinterestedness and all of the other requirements for being appointed as a professional in the case in the first place. So let me switch gears a little bit and go back to something, Judge Fitzgerald, you had mentioned earlier. I think it was one of the two sort of solutions the Fifth Circuit had proposed as a way to address the problem raised by its decision. One of them was, well, you can adjust your initial hourly fee to take account of the possibility of fee challenge. And the second was, there are sanctions for meritless objections to fee applications. So I'd like both of you to address those two sort of solutions the Fifth Circuit proposed? Well, I think I've already uh, addressed the first issue, um, which is whether or not you can build something into your hourly rate. I, I don't think under the bankruptcy code and the standards that are applicable, you can build a, an enhancement yourself into your hourly rate, because that's not something that would happen in a comparable circumstance outside bankruptcy, which is what Congress and the courts impose on the bankruptcy judges as the standard for looking at hourly rates. So I, I don't think that particular policy works, and why you'd want to remove the discretion from the bankruptcy court to look at the circumstances and say it's appropriate in this instance, but it's not appropriate in that instance, and allow it to go into the hands of the professional so that all hourly rates get bumped up because no one ever knows whether they're going to have to defend an objection doesn't make any sense to me. I, I, that just simply doesn't make sense to me. The second one, with respect to sanctions, um, I don't think sanctions are an effective remedy here. First of all, if you've got an entity who is objecting to a fee application and that entity is itself insolvent, you can order sanctions till the cows come home, but they'll never be paid. So it's not an effective remedy. And secondly, I think the standard is very high in that most of the time sanctions are not going to be awarded unless there's really egregious behavior. And not every objection is terribly egregious behavior. So I just don't think either of them work. Professor Ponoroff, I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond. Do you have anything that you wanted to add here? What do you think about these, quote, solutions? Well, let, let me talk about um, the, uh, I agree you can't build it into your fee by adding a premium to your fee, sort of a risk premium because of the possibility of an objection. But what I would point out 
is it's already built into um, the fee. It's part of, as respondents' uh, counsel indicated in oral argument, it's part of the overhead that um, is already built into uh, the fee. Um, and um, so uh, I, I, I think in, in, in point of fact that that is um, part of the solution. Um, when Baker Botts represents another client and charges, let's say, $600 um, an hour, part of that $600 is reflecting overhead associated with collection activities at some time. And the Baker Botts um, lawyer in a bankruptcy proceeding should get the same $600. That's compensation parity, which I'm very um, supportive of. It's maybe a huge, big problem under the Act. And the code solution to that has been wildly successful. Some would say too successful. But um, the point is, I would say it's already built in um, to the fee. Um, I agree that um, sanctions are not the same as a loser pay rule. Um, uh, it's a, it is a judge. Well, she would know better than I would to begin with. But Judge Fitzgerald <laughs> is quite right that um, it, it's a, a very high standard. Most judges are a little reluctant to impose um, sanctions, but by the same token, if it's an insolvent person on the other side who can't pay. Um, the um, sanctions, they also can't pay the fee. Um, but um, I don't think it's a partial um, answer to egregious situations. I don't think it's a complete answer, but that's how our system works, for better or worse. So this is a question for both of you. Looking into your crystal balls, do you have a prediction as to how the court will come out on the issue? Not a clue. <laughs> Professor Ponorov? Um I, I pretty much um, agree with that. I mean, my read was um, Justice Kagan was probably as strongly as, as anyone um, on the um, petitioner's side. I thought Justice Scalia and Justice Roberts were um, much more um, skeptical. Um, but Based on the uh, transcript of the uh, oral argument, um, I think it's it's very hard to um, to predict. Okay. Well, thank you. We shall have to await the Supreme Court's decision. This has been another ABI podcast. I'm Ann Lawton. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.